You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. If you've got a copy of God's Word, go ahead and open it tonight to Hebrews. I'm going to do a little something different. This coming Sunday, I'm going to preach, I think out of Matthew, uh, on the name Jesus. And I'm going to lead you up to, to that. I'm going to give you a behind-the-scenes look tonight out of Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, a lot of y'all have asked about Levi. He's, he's doing well. They did not have to do surgery as of yet. We don't think that they will. Uh, they're going to look at it in a week, uh, take another x-ray, and be sure that it's still where they've put it. It's in a cast. He's doing, doing fine. He has not stopped climbing out of the plate. I, you know, they need to put a lid on those pack-and-play things. So, and it seems like there was something else I needed to tell y'all tonight. I don't, other than if you've never been on a, a mission trip, you ought to go. Um, you ought to save, you ought to set aside and say, you know what, I'm going to do that at least once in my life. Uh, to go somewhere out of this country on a mission trip uh, where you get to go and share with other folks about Christ. We've, we've done that. Scores of times, we did that when our kids were little. We took all of our children so that they could, I wanted each of my children to have to be able to wrestle with the issue, is God calling me uh, to a full-time type of ministry? So I encourage you to do that. Pray about it. You start, you, you, listen, don't, uh, just pray. Just, if you pray about it, I'm confident of what God will start doing. So you just pray about it. Now, angels, as Kirkwood said a little bit ago, we sing so much about angels this time of year, hear so much about angels, think about angels, all of it surrounding the birth of Christ that I wanted to uh, take you to Hebrews chapter 1 and chapter 2 because the writer of Hebrews is basically dealing uh, with this whole issue of angels. Uh, the first two chapters really of, uh, of Hebrews deals with angels. Uh, it's kind of interesting if you start studying angels in Scripture, the study of angels is angelology. Uh, what started all of this was years ago, years and years ago, Billy Graham wrote his book, Angels, 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 because he saw that there was a rise, a curiosity on the part of people about angels. Angels are mentioned over 500 times. There are at least uh, almost 500 different references to angels throughout Scripture. You, you go to uh, Genesis chapter 3, you're introduced to a first, uh, the first angel right there, uh, a cherubim who is guarding with a sword of fire the gate into Eden. Uh, once God expels Adam and Eve. You get to the last chapter of Revelation, and John encounters an angel there. So all the way through Scripture, you've, you've got uh, these created beings called angels. And the interesting thing this time of year is there obviously is an angel who is an OBGYN. Because there's an angel who keeps showing up telling people they're going to have babies. Um, the, the first one is Hagar. Hagar is the first one an angel appears to, tells her to go back to the camp of Abraham because she is going to have a baby. Well, that 
angel comes again, that angel or another OBGYN angel comes and tells Abraham and Sarah they're going to have a baby. And then you get over into the book of Judges and you come to a a little Jewish couple. His name is Manoah and he's married uh, to a woman and the two of them cannot have a baby. And an angel appears and says, you're going to have a baby. And uh, the angel not only does that, but the angel then goes into uh, this whole issue of of what diet she's going to eat while she's pregnant. Uh, Then you skip over to the New Testament and you come to an angel who appears to Zechariah. And Zechariah was an old man. He was a priest. You know the story. He's married to Elizabeth. They've never been able to have children. Well, The angel shows up, tells Zachariah, you're going to have a baby. He's going to be a boy. You're going to name him John. And he's going to be this forerunner of the Messiah. And uh, Zachariah didn't believe him. And because he didn't believe him, now here's the funny thing. He says, okay, you're not going to speak anymore until the baby is born. And it's funny now that Zachariah is told, you won't be able to speak, but you're going to give birth to a to a baby who's going to be the man who will be the voice crying in the wilderness. It's kind of funny. And then, of course, Gabriel comes to Mary, and an angel appears to Joseph and announces the birth of a son, that they're going to have a son. So there's this angel that keeps showing up in Scripture telling people that they're going to have babies. Then you begin to look at the life of Christ, and angels are showing up in the life of Christ. Of course, they're there when he is born. All that we know about angels uh, sharing that Christ has been born. And then you come to um, when Christ is tempted after he's baptized. We're told in Matthew's gospel that he's driven out into the wilderness. He goes into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. Three, those three temptations that we're told about. And then we're told an angel came and ministered to him. Now, it's interesting because on the night that he's arrested, he's in the garden praying. He's left the disciples uh, to pray. Jesus goes off. He falls down on his knees. He begins to pray, and we're told an angel comes and strengthens him. And then when they come to arrest Jesus and, um, you know, Peter's going to try to defend him, Jesus makes the comment, he says, listen, all I've got to do is say the word and I've got these legions of angels that are ready to come. So it's kind of interesting how angels have played all the way through scripture. Now, when you come to the book of Hebrews, Really, outside of the first four verses or the first three verses, when you come to verse four, it begins to talk about angels. Now, the book of Hebrews, you can take Hebrews and over, I've got some things written here, but over the title of Hebrews, all you would have to write here is the superiority of Jesus Christ because that's the entirety of the book of Hebrews. By the way, I did um, an intensive in my PhD work on Hebrews And the interesting thing is this, is that scholarship today says this is a sermon and it is to be preached the whole book at one time. So it's kind of interesting because he's he's laying down an argument in this first chapter. Um, These Hebrews were naturally Jews 
who had converted to Christ. They had believed that Christ is the Messiah. And now, this is the period of Nero, persecution has broken out against the Christians. Uh, Nero's beginning to persecute them, and this is, this is the beginning of it, and it's just only going to get worse. Um, so Nero is persecuting Christians. These people are coming under persecution. They're losing their businesses. They're losing their property. They're losing um, their freedoms. They're being thrown in prison. They're being tortured. Some are beginning to be uh, put to death. They're being martyred for their faith in Christ. So that's what's happening on the one hand with uh, the Romans. On the other hand, with the Jews, because now they've embraced Christ as Messiah, the Jews have rejected them. The Jews now have turned and have written them off. And you, you know this well, when uh, if somebody in a Jewish family embraces Christ as Messiah, uh, they have a, sometimes they'll have a funeral. They treat them as if they're dead. Uh, they won't even speak to them. They won't even look at them. So they're being ostracized by their own people. They're being persecuted. So under this pressure and under this duress, these Jews are thinking, what, what do we do? Maybe we should go back to Judaism. And that's what a lot of the priests were telling these Jews who had left for, uh, to believe in Christ is you, you, this would not happen to you if you had stayed in the synagogue, if you had not embraced Christ as the Messiah. This is why, this, this is why you're suffering. God's punishing you because of this. So some of these Jews began to think, well, listen, we don't want to deny Christ. So maybe, maybe if we say that Christ is not the Son of God, but that Christ is an angel because Jews uh, believed in angels and thought a great deal about angels. They held angels in high esteem. So they thought, well, you know, now not all Jews, the uh, the um, uh, the San, uh, the the, Pharisee, the Sadducees did not believe in angels. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after this life. They didn't believe in heaven. They were liberals. Pharisees did believe in angels, and most of the Jewish population did as well. And so they began to, to, to think through this. Why don't we just say, you know, Christ, we won't deny Christ existed. We know he existed. We know he lived. Let's say that he was an angel. So the writer of Hebrews comes, and he starts there. And he says, you need to understand Christ is superior to angels. Look at verse 4. That's what he's going to tell them right there. Having become as much better than the angels. He's superior to the angels. Now, through the rest of this book, he's going to... He's going to continuously do that. He's superior to Moses. He's superior to the old covenant. He's superior to the Aaronic priesthood. He's superior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. He's superior to the sacrificial system. So he starts this out with saying he's superior to angels. He has become much better than the angels as he, look, he's inherited a more excellent name than they. Now, right here, he's going to launch in and he's going to give you seven titles of Christ that come from the Old Testament. Uh, seven of these titles, or, or five of these titles that come from the Old Testament, and he's going to appeal to seven different Old Testament passages. 
is going to be Psalm 2, and I'm going to get you to turn there in just a few minutes. Psalm 2, he's going to make reference to Psalm uh, 97, Psalm 102, 103, 104, 110. So he's going back to the Old Testament, and what he's doing is this. He's doing exposition on the Old Testament. And he's preaching this sermon, and he's saying, here's my text. And I'm going to show you out of this text how Jesus Christ is superior to all of these angels because I'm going to show you the titles that God gives to him in the Old Testament. Verse 5, the first part of verse 5, you come to the first title of Jesus. He is the begotten. Now look, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Well, the fact of the matter is that question, to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son? He never said that to an angel. Now, in the book of Job, the angels are called the sons of God. But no angel is ever approached by God and and told, you are my son. There's a difference there. So he says, to which of the angels did he say this? Well, the answer is obvious. He never said that to any of the angels. But he says, today I have begotten you. Now that little word, monogonase is the word there, begotten, is a a strange word because we don't really use it and we don't really understand what it means. But I'm going to show you where he gets it. So put your fingers in Hebrews chapter 1 and go with me back to Psalm 2. It is a royal psalm. It is a messianic psalm. It is a psalm that talks about the coming Messiah. And it begins with the nations rejecting God's king, God's Messiah. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth uh, take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. In other words, they're saying, we don't, we don't, we're not going to submit to God. We're not going to submit to his ruler. We're not going to submit to uh, what the Lord wants us to do. Uh, they're taking counsel against the Lord and against his anointed one. Now what's God's response to that? You're told this twice in Scripture. Here's one of the times right here. God laughs at it. What does the Lord do when all of the nations get together and uh, the nations uh, enact some kind of, you know, global initiative that flies in the face of God? God laughs at it all. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord scoffs at him. And he'll speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, but as for me, I've installed my king. Now, listen to what God is saying. I have put my king on the throne upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Do you see that? Thou art my son. This is my son. Are you familiar with that phrase? In the New Testament, this is my son. This is my beloved son. Today I have begotten you. Now, I'm going to point something out to you, but let me, let me go back to the word monogenes for a minute. Genes means existence. Uh, 
um, being. Mono is one or unique or only. The word begotten means this. It means a unique being, a unique existence, an only one existence. So he is calling the son here a unique existence, and he is the only one of his kind. There's no more. There's only one Jesus, and there are no more Jesuses. There's only just this one. And so that word, begotten there, that's literally what it means. Now, you're familiar with that phrase, this is my beloved son, because you're going to hear that twice in the New Testament. Once you hear it at the baptism of Christ, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And then you're going to hear it again on the Mount of Transfiguration where God is going to say, this is my son, listen to him. But where in the world are we told that God said, this is my begotten? Well, let me take you to the preaching of Paul in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, and I'm going to show you what happens uh, with this whole concept here. This whole understanding of begotten right here. He is preaching in Pisidian Antioch. He is now on his, he's on his first mission journey and he's gone into a synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, which is to distinguish from the other Antioch where he's come from. Uh, and he goes into that synagogue and he begins to preach. After the reading of the law, I'm in verse 15. And the prophets, the synagogue officials, uh, sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, he said, Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. Now what he's going to do is he's going to preach. And he's going to preach through the Old Testament and he's going to get to the thing about Jesus being the Savior that they looked for this, they needed this, they longed for this, and now Jesus has come, the Savior. Verse 23, from the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed his coming, a, a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And while John was completing his course, he kept saying, what do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. Behold, one is coming. There's John. All of this, this is, this is Paul's sermon. But now watch, he gets down to verse 30. Jesus has now been crucified, and he says, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that he raised up Jesus as it is also written in the second Psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. There you go. Right there. That's when it happened, when Jesus Christ had finished his redemptive work here on earth. He ascended back to the Father, to the right hand of the Father. He sat down, go back now to Hebrews chapter 1, and look at what Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. 
done. Psalm 2 is a coronation of a king. This is talking about the coronation of Christ. Psalm 2, the father says to the son, you ask me and I will give the nations as your inheritance. You are my begotten. You are the, you are the unique existing one. And you are my king. And one day, you are my begotten. And one day, now, he has gone and he has sat on the throne. And one day, Jesus will say, I want him now. And the father will say, here are the nations as your inheritance. So he comes and that's where he begins. He begins with this whole concept of begotten right there because they understand this concept out of Psalm 2, out of the Old Testament, this is God's king. Now let me take you to the second part of verse 5, and here you come to the second thing, the second title, and that is the son. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. There's the second title of Jesus right there. He is the son of God. Now this verse right here, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, is one of the most precious passages to a Jew in all the Old Testament. It comes out of 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wants to build God a house. And God says, nope, I'm going to build you a house. You remember David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 came and he said to Nathan the prophet, he said, I dwell in this nice house full of cedar and the ark of God dwells in tent in a tent of curtains. And Nathan says, go ahead. Go on and do it, David. I know what you're going to say before you say it. You go ahead and do it. You want to build God a house. You want to build God a temple. But that night God comes to, to Nathan, the prophet, and he says, no, David's not going to do it. But you go tell David this. I appreciate that he wants to build me a house, but I'm going to establish him as a dynasty. And he says, he's going to have a son. You tell him this. He's going to have a son, and he says, I'm going uh, to bless that son when he dies, his son, verse 13 of chapter 7, 2 Samuel, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish, look at this, the throne of his kingdom forever. He says, in other words, Solomon will never, David, you will never lack a descendant to sit on that throne for all of eternity. Look at this, verse 14. I will be a father to him, God says, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Now look at that. He says, I am, you're going to be this son to me, and I'm going to establish this throne for all of eternity. And what he's saying here is this, is that Jesus Christ is that son that sits on that throne. He's going to make it even clearer here in just a minute. You want to know why we've never had peace on this earth? Because we've never had a ruler like this. Fallen man cannot rule this world. 
We, go home and turn on the news. Fallen man cannot rule this world. There, there is, there's too much of the, of the fallen nature in man that when man gets power, he corrupts power. And I'm not making a reference to anybody here because let me tell you, the whole lot of them up there, if you got hope in any of that, you have no hope tonight. Um, any man, I don't care who it is, any man, any woman who comes into power because of a fallen nature, they up, ultimately power corrupts them and they corrupt their leadership. They don't have, listen, they have a, they have a fallen intellect. They can't lead with wisdom. At some point, there's a breakdown in that. Uh, th- there is no accountability when man gets into power, I don't want to be accountable to anybody. I will use a situation. I will manipulate a situation. You see that even in churches. When people get into a position of power in a church, they get a little bit of control. It, it, you, I don't want to be accountable. I'm going to do what I want to do. Amen. I'm, I'm going to start amen in myself. Y'all going to be here for a while now. And so we won't ever know peace in this world until we have someone who is the perfect ruler, who will rule in righteousness, who will rule with fairness and justice, who will rule in wisdom, who will rule with, who is a son of God. So there's your second title for him right there. Now you come to the third title. Hey, by the way, do you know why our democracy has worked so well all these years? Is because you can say what you want to because the founding fathers, and we can debate this whole issue, and I don't think Washington was a deist at all. I think he was a believer personally. Benjamin Rush certainly was. Franklin was a deist. I admit Jefferson was, but they had a biblical worldview. They had a biblical worldview, and they knew that man was fallen and that man could not handle it, and so they put checks and balances, and you see some of that working out. Anyway, the founding fathers had a biblical worldview that at least told them, you can't trust man. Okay, there you go. Number three, the third thing is firstborn. Here's the third title, verse six. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, do you pick up on that right there, what he's just said? And when he again brings the firstborn into the world. This is the second coming here. That's what he's talking about. He's talking to me. He's already talked about the coronation of Christ. He's talking now. He, he moves to this second coming event. And he says, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world. Now, that is an unusual term right there as well. And I'm going to stop and take a little bit of time because somebody's going to knock on your door one day and they're going to come in and say, we'd like to talk to you. And what we'd like to talk to you about is the fact that Jesus Christ was born and that's when his existence started. And you can say, well, wait a minute now. That's not what I've heard in the Baptist church all my life. They said, well, you, that's why we're here because we, we're here to tell you that Jesus Christ his existence began when he was born in Bethlehem. And you go, well, wait, that's still not right. I just don't think that's exactly right. I think he's always existed. 
And they're going to say, no, he didn't. You're going to say, yes, he did. And they're going to say, no, you didn't. You're going to say, yes, he did. And they're going to say, well, now look at here. Let me show you. It says right here in Scripture seven times in the New Testament, twice in Colossians, once in Romans, right here in the first chapter of Hebrews, then again in the, sec- in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, it's going to say he is the firstborn. And they're going to eat your lunch and eat the sack and eat mama's note at the same time. And you're going to wonder, well, what do I do? Was he, is, are they saying, you know, did his existence begin? Now, I'm telling you, no, it did not. He said, well, what do I do at that point? Well, let me just kind of walk you through some of this. There are a number of things that you can do. But one of the things you need to do is this. Just think about this. Are there titles in Scripture? Are, are there titles given in Scripture? Sure. There are a lot of titles that you come across in Scripture. There are titles in Scripture that speak of the deity of Christ. Son of God is one of those. He is Son of God. That is a title that speaks of the deity of Christ. Let me take you back to John chapter 8 for just a minute. Let me show you something there. As Son of God, He has always existed. Jesus is discussing this whole thing with the Pharisees. They kind of want to know, well, who is your father? Now listen, he comes and he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. That's verse 56 of John 8. And he saw it and was glad. Now, if that strikes you as odd, it really struck the Jews as odd. These people arguing with him. And they said, you're not 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham. And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. That's a title. That is a title that speaks to the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, there are also titles that speak of the humanity of Jesus Christ. When Jesus is called Son of Man, that speaks about his humanity. It is a reference to the humanity of Jesus Christ. When Jesus cries out on the cross, I thirst, Jesus is expressing his humanity. Son of God speaks of his deity. Son of Man speaks of his humanity. And then you come to some titles that reference his nature as being fully God and fully man. Firstborn is a title. In Colossians chapter 1, in fact, just, just look there. Look at this. Colossians chapter 1, let me take you um, to verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's a title. If you look down to verse 18, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. That's a title. When you come back over here into Hebrews chapter 1, and it says, uh, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, that's a title so that you know who he is referencing. Now, who was the firstborn? In the Jewish mindset, in the Jewish culture, the firstborn was the one who broke the womb first, uh, and he was the one who inherited everything that the father had. 
uh, he would inherit everything that the father had, but it was much more than that. And I've been trying to explain that as we've gone through Isaac and Jacob and the birthright and the blessing and all of that, what that meant. Uh, there was more than just property, more than just money. Uh, to be the firstborn meant also you were the patriarch of the family. That is, you were you were the godfather. <laughs> you ran the family. Everybody had to come to you. Any decisions that had to be made, any business that had to be done, they came to you. You were the one who arbitrated. You were the judge. You determined in family disputes. Um, and up until the time of the sons of Levi, when they became priests, you were the priest of the family. You were the guy who represented the family to God and God to the family. You were the preacher of the family. And so that's what the firstborn was. And in the mindset of these Jews, they could grasp that. They understood that immediately. Who's going now? So when it comes to mankind and when it comes to the human race, who's going to be the firstborn of the human race? We're going to turn to a military dictator like Julius Caesar or Hannibal or Alexander the Great or Napoleon Bonaparte. Are we going to turn to men of of education like Aristotle or Cicero or Plato? Are we going to come to men who were just brutal dictators like Stalin or Mao or Khrushchev? Are you going to come to men of wealth, men of money like Bill Gates or Michael Bloomberg or Warren Buffett? Who's going to be the sovereign over humanity? Who's going to be the one who is the patriarch over humanity. Well, I don't want it to be anybody but Jesus, personally. That's what he's saying here. He's not telling you that Jesus had his ex- it began his existence at his birth. It, this is a title that says he is the sovereign over everything. So you come to that, and that's what he is. Now, look at the next thing that he says right here. So if they come to you, this is where I would go. I'd say, well, that is just really interesting. Here in Hebrews, it says he is firstborn. So let, can we look at that? It's, he's firstborn. Now, the cult's not going to let you get this far. Uh, this is what my daddy, I remember my daddy doing this. He'd meet him at the door and he'd say, I am glad to give you 20 minutes. And then you're going to give me 20 minutes. And he did it. <laughs> Now, this is, I, I, this is what I'd say. Just look. Look at verse 6. This is interesting here. He's firstborn. So you're telling me that he's basically began his existence when Mary gave birth to him in Bethlehem. Uh, so that would make him a man. But here we're told, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. So wait a minute. You... You mean to tell me that the angels of God are to worship him? And if the angels worship him, then, you know, what about you worshiping angels? You get over to Revelation chapter 22. John turns around. He sees that angel there. He falls down to worship him, the Bible says. John writes this. He falls down to worship him, and the angel says, no, 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 no. He sounds like Porky Pig. Don't do that. Get up. Get up. I'm a servant like you. I'm, I'm not anybody to be worshipped. I serve the Lord. You serve the Lord. You don't worship me. You don't worship man. Go back to Daniel, to the three Hebrew children. 
uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, you know them better as Meshach, Meshach and Abednego. They were told, you worship this God here. So we will not do it. We will put you to death. Then throw us in the fire because we're not going to worship that. You're not told anywhere in Scripture to worship an angel or to worship a man. We are told that God alone. What, the, what does Satan comes to Jesus and he says, if you'll bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. Do you, did you know Jesus doesn't dispute that Satan doesn't have the kingdoms of the world? He just looks at him and he says, the word of God says this. You worship the Lord your God and him alone do you worship. That's the only ones you worship. So it tells me right here when it comes to this and let the angels of God worship him, who are angels going to worship? God. Now look at number four. Here's the fourth title. And the angel, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Now when he says this, who makes his angels winds? God created them. Angels are created beings. He created them. He can use them like the wind. You know, I, I read so much on this. I got caught up with this late this afternoon trying to figure out what is exactly is he saying here who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. I, I, I'm just going to take it like this, that what uh, you see the wind do, God is able to do with angels. Wind can be ferocious. It can be deadly. It moves invisibly with great power. And then he makes them uh, a flame of fire, like a streak of lightning. Power, explosive, fast as lightning. And so here he's talking about these created beings. But now watch this. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God. Oh, my stars. He right here has called Jesus God. There it is. He is not a created being. He is God. He is always, he has always existed. He comes and he says, but of the son, he says, your throne, oh God, is forever and ever. Let me, let me just get on through this. Uh, I don't know if I'm connecting with you or not tonight, but this is pretty fascinating to me. L listen, listen to what, he, what he's saying here. He's saying that, God, that Jesus Christ is God who is eternal. He lasts forever. You, you worry about eternity. You don't need to worry about eternity. You know, you say, well, how long is eternity? That we, we can't wrap our brain around that how long eternity is. But let's just say you've been there a million years and you think, well, Jesus is going to be tired of me by then. No, your wife may be tired of you after 30 years, but Jesus will not be tired of you after a million years. Amen? Amen. Now watch, because there's going to be a shift here, and this is important. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, there's a change in person here. Now, you're going to flunk somebody in English if they do that in the middle of a of a sentence, but it's, this is good theology. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you. He shifts. Do you know what he's saying here? He's saying that God the Father and God the Son are distinctively different. They are distinct. 
distinctively different. Now, listen to me carefully. They are not different in nature. They are different in person. Be sure you get that. Don't y'all be half asleep in here. You can go out and say, I said something heretical. They are distinctly different in person, not in nature. Same substance. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There's one God. You say, wait a minute, that just done. You just said three, and now you said there's one. You say, I can't figure. No, you can't. Do you know why you can't figure that out? Because you have a finite human brain, and we're talking about an infinite sovereign God. And you're never going to figure that out. That's part of the mystery of God. You say, well, I've got to figure that out before I can get saved. Well, you're going to burn. If you don't take it by faith, I'm just telling you, you'll fry. That is, that is my God. I can't explain. If I could explain my God, he wouldn't be God. That is part of the great mystery of God. And here you have it. There is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, distinctively different, in na- not in nature, but in person. Now, let me give you the last thing. Look at verse 10. And you, Lord. Look at that. Is that not amazing? He's calling him Lord. Jesus is Lord. That's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is Yahweh. That is the name that was given to Moses at the burning bush. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth. He's saying Jesus laid the foundation of the earth. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all become old like a garment, and like a mantle you'll roll them up. Now listen to what he's saying. He's saying that there's coming a day when this whole solar system, this universe, this earth, you, me, everything is just going to get old and freight like a... I've got some t-shirts that are 20 years old, 30 years old, that I, I, have, I hide them. I don't let Debbie see them. But when she's not there, I put them on. They're the most comfortable things in the world. Anyway, that, he says that's what's going to happen. It's going to be like an old garment. And he says he's going to roll it up. As a child, I can remember a couple of nights a week, late in the night, I could hear my mama gathering up clothes to go wash. Now, here, say this. A man's work is from sun to sun, but a woman's work is never done. I'd hear it two or three times a week. Late at night, and I'd hear her gathering up clothes. Ladies, you roll up those clothes. You put them in the washing machine. He's going to roll up this whole universe like it's a garment, and he's going to clean it. He's going to make it all new. And who's going to do that? Jesus Christ. That's who it's talking about. You, Lord, you've done this. This is who you are. You are the same. Do you see that right there? But you are the same. That's That's the doctrine of immutability. Jesus never changes. God never changes. Now, will he be moved? Absolutely. You can pray and move the greatest power in the universe, and that's God. But God will never change. Now, that's just good. Y'all on a Wednesday night, I'm going to ship in a couple of Pentecostals is what I'm going to (laughs) do. That's just good. You're the same, and your years will not come to an end. But, and he comes back to the question, but to which of the angels did he ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? None of them. 
Jesus Christ is better. Listen, I don't know how to explain all of this, but I'm going to tell you something. There's coming back, there's coming a day when in majesty and power, Jesus Christ is going to step up off that throne and onto a cloud. And the eastern sky will split, the Bible tells us. And when he comes, he will come with the whole host of heaven. All of those who died in Christ will come back with him. The angels will fill the horizon. There'll be so many, they'll fill the universe. They will come back out of a dimension we're not even familiar with. And we, if we're living, will be caught up to be with him in the air. He will usher us into a place of beauty that goes beyond beauty and goes beyond majesty and goes beyond description. We will see colors in a spectrum that we have never seen with these human eyes. There are colors that exist that you and I have never seen and will never see until we reach that place that he's prepared for us. We will hear angelic choirs sing in octaves that we have never heard before, that human ears could not handle at this point. We will look at beauty beyond beauty and majesty beyond majesty. And we, listen, there will be an awe. Have you ever had one of those moments where you just felt like you were lifted up and out of yourself, but it passed in a second? There will be wave after wave of euphoria that will become the norm for your life. And when that happens, I'm going to point and say, that's what I've been talking about right there. That's it right there. Right there. Right there. That's it. You see. Now, he's writing this to Jews who are being persecuted, who are hurting. And what he's saying to them is this, is that that God is Jesus and he's always available to you. J. Vernon McGee. Any of y'all remember J. Vernon McGee? He's been dead for a long while. And we're going to do the Bible study. This is J. Vernon McGee. J. Vernon McGee talked about back in the 1950s, he was playing golf in California. And he said he had hit a ball. It was in a sand trap. And he said he got over in the sand trap and he dug himself into the thing and said about the time he was getting ready to swing, he looked back over and he said, over the hill came this huge entourage of people. And he thought, well, good night, what is that? All this crowd coming out. And he said, he looked and he said, in the middle were all these men in dark suits. And he said, as he watched them as they got closer, he said he could see through all of that. And there was Dwight Eisenhower, who was president at the time, was out playing golf. Now, J. Vernon McGee, like most every man in that period of time, had served in World War II, and Eisenhower was his commander. And he said, he said, I wanted to throw down my golf club. He said, I just wanted to run over and grab the hand of Dwight David Eisenhower and just say, you know, General, I was one of your soldiers. 
You did a magnanimous job. What a great job. Thank you for putting your life on the line. Thank you for what you did for the world, not just America, but the world. But J. Vernon McGee said, I thought if I made one move, they dropped me dead with a bullet. (laughs) And then J. Vernon McGee said this. He said, but I thought right then, all I got to do is bow my head and I'm immediately in the presence of Almighty God. Oh, what a thought, Father, that we can be in your presence in less than a second. In fact, Father, the truth is we're never out of your presence. You're always here. You're always watching. You're always caring. And we worship you as God. Father, take these few minutes and these verses and instill within those of us who were here tonight a deeper love and honor for Jesus Christ, who is the only begotten of the Father, the Son, the firstborn. He is our God. He is Lord. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.